Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8 this evening, the power of persevering prayer. The power of persevering prayer. A truth that becomes ever more apparent the longer one is a believer is the essential nature of prayer in our relationship with God. Jesus often taught on prayer. The book of Acts regularly exemplifies prayer in the early church. The epistles contain several direct lessons in regard to prayer and the nature of prayer. Tonight's focus is primarily on one prevailing attribute of prayer, namely perseverance. It is perhaps the most difficult of the attributes of prayer. I say that with a qualified uh, idea because there are many attributes of prayer which at least I uh, tend to struggle with, perseverance only being one of them. One of the other ones that can be difficult is one that we studied way back in Luke 11. Perhaps you recall this illustration of a man who, because he was in need of bread, went to his neighbor's house late at night and banged on his door until the neighbor got up and gave him bread. The neighbor doesn't want to do it. However, because of the King James says his importunity, he got up and did it. The word that the King James used there was importunity. And at the time, we had mentioned that while the English word used is importunity, meaning uh, to urge with troublesome frequency, that's not really what the Greek word behind that word meant in its fullness. The Greek word behind it, as we mentioned, uh, was not so much to nag, as that word importunity implies, but rather um, to be shameless or impudent. To be shameless in asking. Jesus wasn't emphasizing as much persistence as he was, if we want to use that word importunity, he was only emphasizing one aspect of importunity. Not the persistent aspect of it, but the shameless aspect of it. The fact that I have no right to go to my neighbor's house at midnight and bang on his door until he gives me bread, but I want this bread, so I'm going to do it. Right? That's shameless. That is, that is unapologetic in your desire to get what you want. And that was the idea of what Jesus was preaching in Luke 11, that we are to pray shamelessly, to be bold at, uh, in our requests, not hindered by our fears that God might turn us away. Uh, we mentioned also at the time that this does not mean we pray for things which are obviously biblically outside of God's will, right? If, uh, if, if I read something in the scriptures that says I should not seek or desire something based on lust or whatever the case may be, I, I pray for that. Obviously, God's not going to grant it, no matter how shameless, bold, or persistent I am. But rather, we are to boldly seek God's favor in those things which we need or desire and to boldly seek God's will. Now, that parable had an element of perseverance to it. We mentioned already that man was persistent. He was persevering in the, the goal that he had in mind. But that wasn't the focus. It was on him being shameless, impudent. Right afterward, Jesus teaches about asking, seeking, knocking. Once again, the primary focus is not that you should keep asking, keep seeking, keep, keep knocking in its fullness. The primary focus is being willing to ask, knock, seek, and to begin with. Um, being willing to shamelessly ask the Lord for the things that we would desire. This evening, however, we are talking about perseverance. We are talking about the continual asking, the continual seeking, the continual knocking. We are talking about keeping it up. 
with our prayers. An extra layer to our understanding of prayer. And we begin in verse 1 with an introduction. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We have a rare privilege in this parable in that we are given its meaning right on the outset. We don't have to wonder about what it's saying. We don't even have to wait for Jesus to interpret it on the other end. It says right at the beginning what this parable is about. And that means that we should interpret the words of this parable and the lessons from this parable through the lens of what the Bible says the parable is about, right? We should not be interpreting it through the lens of what I think it means. We don't have to think about what it means. We know what it means. The point is that we ought always to pray and not to faint. Now we can draw other interesting, helpful ideas, but this is the point that we need to be looking for. This is the lesson we need to be drawing, that men are always to pray and not to faint. And let's remind ourselves of just how important it is, the actual meaning of the parable. Since they're intended to teach one lesson, we need to be careful that we don't get too caught up in all of the side things, that we fail to draw the lesson that Jesus intends us to draw. So we step into the parable with this interpretive context. What are we looking for? We're looking for a lesson on how we ought always to pray and not to faint. That word faint meaning to be weak, exhausted, or worn out. How to pray without getting worn out. If you've ever prayed uh, for a longer period of time or if you've ever prayed for something continually, it's exhausting to keep it on your mind, to keep it on your heart, to bring it up day in and day out, even when you're not necessarily seeing any visible results of your prayers, that's an exhausting, difficult thing to do. So Jesus gives a lesson. And we read the beginning of this lesson in verses 2 and 3, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man, and there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me. Of mine adversary. So we are introduced in this parable to two characters. The first is the judge of a particular city. He's described as a man who does not fear God. By stating that this judge does not fear God, Jesus is implying here that this judge is not a just judge. Now we'll see in verse 6 that he actually calls him an unjust judge. How, and so we'll know from our context that that's what Jesus is saying. But I would like to take a moment to draw the link here between Jesus saying that this judge did not fear the Lord and the fact that by knowing that this judge does not fear the Lord, we can understand by implication that he is an unjust judge. What is a judge supposed to do? A judge is supposed to be an impartial representative of the rule of law. He is to be an impartial representative of the rule of law. A judge is called upon to have the utmost loyalty only to the law of the land so that regardless of what he thinks, regardless of how he feels, he rules only by whether or not the law has been broken or obeyed. As we consider judges, they fall into two primary categories. There are those who are loyal to the law because they love and respect their society or the idea, the ideals of law. And then there are those who are loyal to the law because they love and respect objective truth and a divine authority. The first type, those who simply love and respect their authority uh, and so enforce 
the laws or they love and respect their society and so enforce the laws or they love and respect the idea of laws so they enforce the laws. They do so because of a regard for what we might call a social contract. Their loyalty is not necessarily to truth. They see the enforcement of the law as the enforcement of the society's opinion about right or wrong. That when a person enter into a society, they enter into a social contract with that society whereby you say, I will receive the benefits of living in a civilized society and in exchange for receiving the benefits of living in a civilized society, I am going to follow the laws that society has agreed upon. They believe that society functions on this general social construct, so I agree to obey basic principles of decency and society agrees to give me the benefits that can only come in a civilized society. So judges in this particular idea are only arbiters of a social contract. They don't have to agree with the laws, but their loyalty is to the ideology of the rule of law and its importance to a functioning society. They are the ones who mediate the social contract. They don't necessarily see truth as objective. They believe truth rather to be open to opinion and defined by the government and the society under the social contract. There are many judges within this category that are good judges. Impartiality is something that they can do because they agree with the social contract at hand. However, it is also within this category of judges that you can get unjust judges. Because they have no regard for a higher moral authority... The highest moral authority to them is the state or this social contract. When this authority ceases to agree with their perception of morality, judges can begin to rule based upon what they want their society to become rather than what their society has agreed upon. Or they can begin to rule based upon what others will do for them and the benefits that will be to them rather than to the ideologies of the social contract which they may or may not agree with. Because truth is subjective in their eyes, their loyalty to the law extends only as far as their loyalty either to the social contract or to the leaders of that society. This creates judges who rule contrary to the law in order perhaps to hinder certain elements of society or to boost their own well-being in that society. They enforce harsher, harsher sentences on some easier on others based entirely upon their opinions, their feelings, their personal desires. We call these today activist judges because their loyalty to law extends only as far as their respect for the society or the government that made them or only as far as it does not become a detriment to their own priorities. And when their respect for society or government fades or their desire for personal gain overrides that, they rule not according to the laws established, but rather according to what they want those laws to be or to what will benefit them the most. And this is an unjust judge. And take note, just quickly, that when the rule of law fails in a land, society will fail as well. In the news every week, we read about activist judges particularly in this time because our president is one that many of them don't like. They defy the rule of law because they don't like the leaders of the nation. And as these actions are allowed to happen, society weakens. 
The second type of judge is the one who is loyal to the law because they believe in objective truth. They believe there is such thing as right and wrong. They have a regard for a higher moral authority than just the law, rather to the lawgiver. Their love for the rule of law is an extension of their conviction that there is such thing as truth. And they deeply value truth because it forms the bedrock of not just a stable society, but it forms the bedrock for a stable life. They know that when the rule of law collapses, when personal opinions overrule objective facts, when personal priorities overrule social contracts, when the objective is overshadowed by the subjective, they know that society itself cannot function. But they also recognize that as a judge, they are an ordained minister of God, so they will answer to God for how they judge. And because they know that they will answer to God, They rule in the fear of God. They judge in the fear of God. They maintain honesty, integrity, and loyalty to truth because they know that God is watching. And so as with any other area of life, if we're just trusting a person's moral compass to make them a good person, that's going to fail. But when a person knows that there is a God in heaven who sees and who knows and who is watching and unto whom they will stand before one day, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes how I pastor when I know I will answer to God for how I pastor. It changes how you father or mother when you know you will answer to God for how you father or how you mother. It changes how you do your job at work. It changes how you do your chores at home. It changes everything when you know that there is a God who is watching, who is the moral arbiter above the laws of your parents or your society or your government or your household. The loyalty of those who understand truth is steady because it's not founded upon things that change such as societies and governments. Their integrity remains because they know that even if they get away with it in this life, they'll answer for it in the life to come. To this end, we read what the Bible says about judges throughout the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3, the Bible says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. This was particularly in regard to a king who at the time was the final judge of the land. But the idea is this. A man who rules over other men must be just. He must rule in the fear of of God. In other words, he must do what he does as an extension of the fact he knows God is watching him and that he's responsible. God gave the law to the children of Israel, and in Leviticus 19:15 we read this: "Ye shall not do unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor." This list of commands given finishes in verse 18 with a very familiar phrase in the law. Uh, Verse 18 says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So that concept of judging righteous judgments is in a list. And at the end of the list, notice what the Lord says. I am the Lord. Anytime you see this in the law, anytime you see God give a list of commands and at the end of it, he says, I am the Lord. This is what he's telling them. He's telling them, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Let me tell you why, because I'm God. Because I'm watching. 
He is appealing to his own authority as the reason. So in other words, when my children are told to do something, I, I, I use my children a lot nowadays as examples. As they get older, it's amazing how many illustrations you get out of them. So as uh, my children will, will uh, be in the house and I'll say, do something. And as we talked about last week or the week before, um, there are a couple of different ways that the children can respond, right? They can say, yes, sir, do it, or yes, sir, and then ask why as a reason, or they can look at me and say, why? Which is in a totally different tone, and that is seditious, <laughs> that is rebellious, that is outside of submission, right? Well, the idea being that really all that, it, all that I need to do is say, child, please go do this. I am thy father, and that's enough, right? According to the Bible, I am thy father is enough. Now, if there are other reasons, and I want to sit down with my children and say, children, these are the reasons why we ask you to do things. Now, that's entirely within my prerogative. But it is enough for me to say, child, go brush thy teeth. I am thy father, right? Uh, I wouldn't use thy, of course. But, you know, that's the idea. That's the idea. And this is what God is doing here. He says, I'm the Lord. We talked about the Lord and his authority this morning. He is God. Because he is God, do these things. And one of the things which he says is, because I am God, because I'm watching, because I rule over you, be just. Be just. God summarizes these concepts in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says, I charge your judges at this time, saying... Hear the causes between your brethren and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment. Don't favor one person over another. Be objective. Judge righteously. But ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man for the judgment is God's and the cause that is too hard for you. Bring it unto me and I will hear it. And I command you at that time all the things which ye should do. And finally, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 16, several chapters later, this. In verses 18 and 20. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Notice here God tells Moses that he is going to set up judges in the gates of all the cities. So in any given city, there would be a judge and he would sit at the front gate of that city where they would do commerce, where all of the, the leaders of the city would sit and there he would ju judge and he was called to judge just righteous judgments, to not respect persons, to not take gifts and so um, be, be, be open to bribery, right? And that's what we have here. In this illustration, we have one of these judges that is sitting at the gate. And the fact that the Bible says he is a judge that does not fear the Lord, as we look at this foundation that we've laid in the Old Testament, we know that this means he's a judge that is not just. He is a judge. Perhaps he's respecting persons. Perhaps he's taking gifts, bribes. Uh, we don't know exactly what it is. We can get a, a slight picture of it from the parable. But this is who we're dealing with here. One of these judges that would sit at the gates, but he was not a just judge. 
The second character we're introduced to is a widow woman. Now, Jesus used a widow woman in this scenario in order to paint the biggest contrast possible. Widow women had no sway in Jewish society. They had no husband to speak for them. They had no capacity to speak for themselves. They had no voice. So the contrast is this. Big, powerful, influential judge that sits at the gate that is one of the leaders of the city contrasted with small, weak, widow woman who has no voice, who has no power, who has no sway. And that's what Jesus is painting here. A huge societal contrast for us to understand that with this judge lies all the power. With this judge lies all the ability. If he just wants to ignore this woman, he has every ability to do it. He has all the power in this interaction. And we need, and that's what we need to take away from this. But this woman still has the right to come to the judge. He sat at the gate, so he couldn't exactly avoid her, right? Uh, he, he couldn't close the doors and lock it. She could still come to the gate. And so she does. She comes to the gate, specifically asking the judge, avenge me of my adversary. Someone had done her wrong. We don't know anything about the circumstances. We don't know who the adversary is. All we know is that this woman has been wronged. And we take it on presumption, because it's a parable, that everything is, that she is telling the truth, that she has been wronged, that if this judge were going to be just, he would rule in her favor. We find out what happens then in verses 4 and 5. And he would not for a while, a venture that would be, right? He would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. That word weary there, by the way, actually means to blacken one's eye. Literally, he's saying, this woman is going to beat me up. Not, not physically, she's just going to pummel me with her presence, is the idea here. So for a while, this judge, being an unjust judge, has no interest in this woman. She has nothing to commend herself. Why should he care about her? Why should he listen to her circumstances? Leave me alone, lady. You're nothing. You're small potatoes. I don't care about you. I don't care about judgment. I don't care about God. I just want to be left alone. Let me have a case where I might actually be able to get some money under the table and then I can go, you know, go, go along with my business. There's no advantage for him to give in to her. She has nothing to give him. But every day he comes to the gate and she's there waiting. She's a widow woman. She's got nothing better to do. She's going to be there and she's going to sit there all day and it's going to be there every day. She's going to be there. And every day he wakes up saying, She's going to be there. I know she's going to be there. And maybe he kind of sneaks up around the corner to see if she's there. And he's like, oh, she's there. But he has to be there. He has to sit in his seat, right? He's the judge. It's what he has to do. But in order to get there, he has to go through her. And he's going to hear it every day. Avenge me of mine enemies. And after a while, Jesus says, this man, this unjust man, this man who doesn't fear God, says to himself, self, this woman is annoying. I don't care about God. I don't care what God thinks of me. I don't care about people. I really don't care about her circumstances. I don't care about her justice. I don't care about her. I don't care about God. 
but I care about me and she's bugging me. And for the sake of my own peace, so that I can wake up in the morning and not think that lady's going to be there again, she's going to keep coming. She's not old enough to kick the bucket. Let's just take care of this. Let's just deal with her. Let's just give her what she wants so that she'll leave me alone. Because if I don't, she's going to keep coming and she is just going to wear me out, literally to hit under the eye, to beat up, to wear out. She's going to grind me down and I don't want to deal with that. So I'm just going to give her what she wants. So this judge eventually did the right thing, but for all the wrong reasons, right? He didn't care about her. He didn't care about justice. He did it entirely for selfish reasons, but this woman persisted and her persistence led to even this kind of man finally avenging her of her adversary. That's the scenario. Then Jesus says in verse 6, Hear what the unjust judge saith. Textually speaking, the Bible adds and the Lord saith to help us understand that Jesus is done with the parable and now he's going on to application. Uh, that's why we see the and the Lord saith there. It breaks up the parable so that we know he's finished with it. And his first statement is startling in its simplicity. Hear. That word really meaning something more akin to listen. Listen to what the unjust judge said. This is actually the first time Jesus uses the word unjust in relationship to this judge. We mentioned that already. So Jesus effectively says, did you, did you hear what the unjust judge said? That though he doesn't care about her, though he doesn't care about justice, because she is persistent and he loves his peace and his comfort so much, he is compelled to give her what she wants. Then Jesus applies. He says in verse 7, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Now take note that the lesson has already been given to us, right? The lesson is, men ought always to pray and not to faint. To this end, Jesus uses the case of being avenged of wrongs as an example of one of the most difficult exercises of prayer. One of the most wearying circumstances of prayer. The circumstance of God's elect, that would be those who have, in our age at least, accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and so been brought into this group of elect people known as the church. We'll talk about that next week. One of the most wearying prayers is the prayer of God's elect for justice. Why? It's one of the most wearying prayers because as we considered last week, when does judgment come to God's elect? Comes at the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? That is when justice is served. That's when God's elect are finally avenged by God. And this is probably why Jesus used the example here. It's kind of interesting that Jesus goes from this parable of praying with perseverance always to pray and not to faint to this idea of the elect crying out to God for justice. Why get so specific? We know that Jesus is teaching on praying and not fainting. He's not necessarily preaching about avenging, right? 
This is why it's so important that we understand the point of the parable. Jesus is not teaching here about the fact that, that God will avenge his elect. He's teaching about the fact that we should persevere in prayer. So why would he use the example of God avenging his elect? Well, because if we remember what I preached last week at the end of Luke 17, what was it about? The second coming, right? That, that, that the Lord is going to come and it's going to be like lightning out of heaven and then God is going to judge. So perhaps it is that on the heels of this teaching, especially since Jesus had mentioned that it's not necessarily going to be something that's going to come right away because he first has to suffer many things, the disciples were beginning to say, oh, okay, so there's going to be some time before vengeance will be meted out to the unbeliever. Hmm. And so in the meantime, what do we need to do? We need to keep giving it to God. We need to keep giving it to God and giving it to God. And that's wearying, isn't it? Because at some point, I just want to avenge myself. If God's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. God is going to do it. Yeah, but you have to wait. You have to wait until when? Well, not for next week or not for the next election. We have to wait until the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's when God will avenge his elect. And that could be a long way off. It may not be. It may be tonight. That, that, that those things are ushered in, obviously, and then there would be seven years. Maybe tonight that, that, that things begin, but it may not be. And because it may not be, there's going to have to be some perseverance. Now, I remind you again, before we move on to um, what Jesus taught about avenging ourselves and the idea here, I remind you again, Jesus is, the, that parables have one point. So Jesus is not saying here that he, like the unjust judge, rolls his eyes and doesn't want to do justice, but eventually does it because we nag him enough, right? He is using this just like he did with the unjust servant who really took his master to the cleaners. And then at the end, the master says, ah, ha, ha, but at least he finally had enough initiative to do something with his life. It's the same thing here. If even an unjust judge because of the perseverance of someone eventually gives in, how much more will a God who loves you want to bless you through your perseverance of prayer, right? That's the idea here. As we consider this example that Jesus gives, though, we, are, we live in a world where Jesus repeatedly commands us. He has repeatedly commanded us not to avenge ourselves. Way back in Luke 6, that was a long time ago, I preached that. Way back in Luke 6, Jesus taught this. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer also the other. And to him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye have hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also do lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, 
hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. This is Jesus' call upon our lives. And if this is Jesus' call upon our lives, if we are called to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us and to lend to those who can't pay us back, then are we as Christ followers simply called to be the perpetual doormats for the world, for them to wipe their feet on us for the rest of eternity? Well, no. Because on the authority of God's Word, the teaching is not that when you become a Christ follower, you, you, you lose your right to be avenged of evil. The Bible never teaches that. When you become a Christ follower, you do not lose your right to be avenged of evil. Rather, the teaching in the Bible is that when you become a Christ follower, you yield your right to be avenged of evil to God. And you trust God to avenge you. You yield your right to take it into your own hands and you yield that to God who has promised to do it for you in a way that without question is much better than we could ever do it anyway. And that's where faith comes in, right? That me taking vengeance upon my enemy, to whatever degree I could do it, I know that God can do it better. And on top of that, I know that God will do it. And if I take it into my own hands, do you know what? What's done is done. The vengeance is done. God's not going to double avenge. You've just stripped from God what God has asked to have. And in doing so, you have actually lessened the vengeance on your enemy because now God won't take it. God, God will show mercy on them for the sake of your disobedience. The Bible makes that clear. The Bible tells us not even to wish upon our enemies evil, not even to speak evil of our enemies for in doing so, the Lord might pardon them, have mercy upon them for our sakes, for our evil. And so it is we're called not to avenge. To this end, every time we avenge ourselves of a wrong done against us, we are exhibiting a lack of trust in God. Every time we do this, we are actually exhibiting a lack of faith. And so it is sin for us because whatsoever is not of faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Paul sums it up best in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So the faithful believer regularly lifts up his cry unto God to be avenged. Not because he doesn't think God will do it. Why is perseverance even coming in here? Because this is a hard prayer to persevere in. Because it's something where I want to do it myself and every day I might feel the urge to avenge myself of my enemies. So what do I have to do? I wake up in the morning and I ask God for vengeance and in doing so, this prayer helps me align myself with the will of God. I am literally praying myself into the will of God. God, avenge me. God, avenge me. And if that is 
if my, my desire for vengeance is here and God's will that He would avenge me is there, then as I pray, God, avenge me. God, avenge me. God, avenge me. I'm remembering His faithfulness. I am bringing myself in line with Him. And I am reminding myself as the Spirit of God reminds me that God will avenge me. And He replaces that anger and that frustration with peace. But how much easier would it be just to get it, off of, <laughs> get it off of my chest by avenging myself? Yes, but that's not the call. That's not the call. You will find in this life that one of the primary purposes of prayer is that as we pray, we are aligning ourselves with God's plan, with God's purposes, with God's will. Indeed, it has rightly been said on many occasions that prayer doesn't change God uh, because God is unchanging. Rather, prayer changes us. And as we change through prayer, those changes move us into the path of God's will, at which time He is able in consistency with His character to give us those things which we desire as we ask for them because they're fully in line with His desire and purposes. Now, pastor, are you, do you mean that prayer is fatalistic? That it doesn't matter? That all we're doing is we're praying for God's will that's going to be done one way or another? No, I'm not saying we're praying explicitly for God's will, though we should be praying for that also. But we are praying in His will. We've talked about this before, again, with an example of my children, right? If my child comes up to me and says, Daddy, may I have a treat? There are many things that go through Daddy's mind as to whether or not child may have a treat. It's not that I don't want to give my child, I don't want to make my child happy, but I need to think about some things. How close are we to dinner? How close are we to the last meal? Uh, how many treats have they had today? How well behaved have they been today? Is this going to spoil something else? Do we have a bigger treat planned? Uh, if we have a big treat planned after dinner, no, I'm not going to give them a small treat before dinner. All of these things go through my mind. And then I... At that point, having assessed the situation, say yes or no. If I say no, then my child then at that point begins to think about how the conditions can be changed to align themselves with dad's will, right? If I can align all the conditions to where they meet dad's will, then because dad loves me and he wouldn't want to withhold something from me, then maybe I can have my treat. And so if it is something simple such as, well, no, because you haven't cleaned your room yet, then if they go clean their room, maybe they can have a treat. They fulfill the conditions of the Father's will. They pray. In prayer, they recognize that they have fallen short of the Lord's will. They align themselves with, the, with, with their Father's will. Excuse me. They align themselves with their Father's will, and then their Father is ready then to open up the windows of blessing. It's the same with God. That we know our Father loves us, that He desires to give good gifts to us. We know that, and we know that we are to ask, even be shameless in asking. That's what Luke 11 tells us, right? And so if we're to be shameless in asking, then we go before the Lord and we ask for things. And then if we're not receiving the things that we ask, it's for one of two reasons. Either because it, what we are asking for is directly out of line with what the Lord wants for us, or it's because we have not aligned ourselves with the Father's will so that He can't give it to us. And so this process of prayer, as we're praying these prayers, we're searching our hearts. The Spirit of God is interacting with us. He's speaking to us. He's identifying things. And if He identifies something that's between us and the Father, something that is keeping His will from us, it, when He identifies it, we get it right, and maybe that is what will open the windows of blessing. Or maybe it is that as I'm praying for something, the Lord will change my heart and I'll realize that what I'm desiring is not actually what I want. 
It's what I did want, but it's not what God wants for me. And so I alter my prayers. The Spirit of God works in me and through me. And that prayer is helping conform me to that which the Father actually wants to give me. And that which is so much better for me to begin with. Parents know how this works. If you've ever had someone that you've, you, you've dealt with in an authority level, you understand this idea. Except that we heighten it a hundredfold because we know we have a father that loves us unconditionally. Who doesn't have mood swings. That the reason why dad's saying no is not just because he had a bad day today. Uh, that, may be, that may be the reason in, in this dad's life because dad is flawed. But that's never going to be the reason in, in our father, heavenly father's existence, right? We're never going to go to, dad, to go, go to our heavenly father and our heavenly father's having a bad day so he just withholds from us something that he would have otherwise given to us but not because he's grumpy. So it's a perfected example, of course. And that's why we regularly lift our prayers unto the Lord. In this case, we know that God will avenge us. And we know when it will happen. It will happen at the second coming. So why are we praying? Why are we persevering in prayer? We're doing so so that we can be aligned with Him on this. Lord, avenge me. Lord, avenge me. Lord, avenge me. In the midst of hard times, however, it can be so easy to feel as though God doesn't hear. In this example, we know, and we know this biblically speaking, that God will not avenge His children until the day of judgment in total. And so though God hears and God will avenge, we must patiently wait. We must faithfully, prayerfully wait. But remember, the point of Jesus' parable is not to remind them that God will avenge. The point of the parable is to remind them that they ought always to pray and not to faint. And to keep this in mind, Jesus finishes in verse 8 saying this. And I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 again for context. He says, And shall not God avenge His own elect, which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them? I tell you, He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, Shall he find faith on the earth? Notice there speedily and the Son of Man coming are connected again, right? So we know it's the second coming. This makes sense because he just taught on that in Luke 17. So verse 7 asks the question, Shall not God avenge those that cry unto him? Verse 8 answers it. Yes, of course he will. He will do so swiftly. That doesn't necessarily mean soon, by the way. That word means Quickly. And in Luke 17, we know that Jesus said it will happen like lightning, right? But here's Jesus' question. Remember, he's just using the prayers of the saints for vengeance as an example of prayer for something that is not received right away, something for which we have to persevere. But then Jesus asks, when I return, when, the, when it's time for judgment, will anyone still be praying for it? Or will everyone have faltered? Will I find anyone who had enough faith to watch and pray until the end? Will I find anyone with enough perseverance to continue to cry out to me for their daily sustenance while they patiently wait for deliverance? Will I find anyone who truly doesn't avenge themselves and who yields it to me if I tarry?
And this is where we need to focus our time this evening. That we would be determined in our hearts that if the Son of Man comes in our generation, He will find faith on the earth. That if Jesus comes while I still draw breath, He will find at least one believer who yet lifts up prayers and perseverance unto God. Two points of application this evening. Number one, reminder. Pray without ceasing. How do we cope in times when we're doing our best not to avenge evil and doing our best to overcome evil with good? How do we cope in times where we read about churches being shot up by evil people? How do we cope in times where we would fear for our lives, where we would fear for our well-being, where we would fear for those that hate us? How do we cope when we know we are called to forgive and it's so difficult to forgive? How do we cope when we see evil men perpetrating evil acts, perhaps even on ones we love? How do we cope when we long for healing from a terrible disease and it's just not coming? How do we cope when we're trying our best to serve the Lord, but the fruit is minimal and we get discouraged? How do we cope when that person is not a believer and they've heard the gospel and your heart aches for them? How do we cope when our job just isn't going the way we expected? How do we cope when we lose a loved one? We pray. We pray. The Scriptures are full of this. The legacy of the Scriptures in this vein. In Romans 12, we already considered verse 17, do not recompense evil for evil. We already considered verse 21, do not, become over, uh, be, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. If we, re, if we rewind a bit more in that chapter, we read this in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant that word meaning to be earnest toward, to persevere or to adhere closely. Continuing, hanging on to prayer. Adhering closely to prayer. Persevering in prayer. Continuing instant in prayer. Persevering in prayer. This is the call of the believer. And these words come just before Paul's exhortation that we would not avenge ourselves. In the midst of a call to live in fervent love one toward another in the church. How is it that we can maintain such distinctives? How is it that we can love one another as we are called to love? How is it that we can be kindly affectionate one to another? How is it we can avenge not ourselves? How is it that we're able to do these things? We pray as a part of the determination that we would yield to the Lord our will, obey the word of God, and trust God with the results. That if I will love the unlovely, that if I will love those that don't deserve it, that if I will be kind to those who don't deserve it, that if I will pour out my affection among the brethren, that, that, that God will reward that. And how do I get there? I pray, I pray, I pray. I continue instant in prayer. We could say the same for your relationship with your spouse or your parents. How can you love and submit and obey and honor when they aren't living in a manner that deserves it. 
you pray. You be a part and, and, and you pray as a part of your determination that you will yield it to the Lord. You ask the Lord for strength, for help, and then you trust the results to God. And also as an acknowledgement of your desperate need for God to help you do it. This is how we love one another. This is how we maintain, maintain initiative. This is how we re- rejoice in hope. This is how we are patient in tribulation. This is how we rejoice with them that do rejoice and we weep with them that weep. It comes from aligning ourselves with God through communion with God by means of persevering prayer. How's your spiritual life? Do you find yourself struggling to conform to the scriptural expectations? Do you find yourself struggling to obey? Well, let me ask you a second question. If your answer to that one was yes, I do find myself struggling. Let me ask you a second question. How's your prayer life? Are you continuing instant in prayer? Are you always praying without fainting? What about spiritual warfare? What about overcoming temptation? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 18. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here it is. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Paul tells us that we are in a spiritual battle. We are against a spiritual foe. You are dealing with people, right? You're dealing with people and people are unlovely and people are frustrating and people are unkind and you want to avenge yourself and you want to ignore people and you want to just be left alone and you want to just not deal with it. And the Bible says that you need to love the brethren and that you need to forgive your enemies and that you need to be, be, uh, be overcoming evil with good and you do so by continuing instant in prayer. But there's a spiritual battle as well because the forces that we're wrestling with are not actually the physical forces. The evil people in this world, it's not actually them that are our enemies. It's not actually those, those elements of this world that are our enemies. We are wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. How do we fight that battle? Well, we put on righteousness and all of these things that the Bible says, the armor of God, and then we pray always. We persevere in prayer For in perseverance, there's power. There's power to change you into the man or woman that you need to be for the Lord. There's power to encourage your heart in the day of temptation and weakness. There's power in protection, spiritual protection of yourselves and others from the great spiritual enemy. There's power to have the desires of our heart fulfilled as we find ourselves in the love of God, asking Him the things that are His will, and then He gives them to us. James tells us, however... Ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So the question is, how's your prayer life this evening? 
One more simple command I share with you in this point. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 15 to 22. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Here it is again. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Once again, we find many commands given in short succession. And as all of these commands are given, right in the middle there, pray without ceasing. Where does the will come from to make all of these things a reality in our lives? Where does the capacity come from to make all of these things a reality in our lives? It comes from persevering prayer. You're struggling with sin? How's your prayer life? You're dealing with spiritual foes and you feel as though there's no, that you have no control? You have no control over the minds of others. You can't sway the minds of others. You can't sway a person into heaven. You can't sway a person into obedience, but what can you do? You can fight the spiritual battle. You can pray. How's your prayer life? One more point. The first point, reminder, pray without ceasing. The second point and final point this evening, reassurance. God is loving and just. Why? Why bring these things constantly to God? Why persevere in prayer? You do it because you trust that what God says is true. Because we trust that God is to handle these things, is able to handle these things far better than I can. God, I can't convince a person into heaven, but your Holy Spirit is powerful. I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to keep praying for them until they die or they're saved. God, someone did wrong to me and I could do something to avenge myself, but you know what? I fully believe what your word says and I believe that you can do it better than I can. I'm going to yield that to you and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray. God, I just can't get along with that person. There's nothing more I can do on my end and it takes two, but here's what I know. Your spirit is powerful and I can pray for them. I can fight this battle on my knees if I can't fight it in person. I'm going to pray. God, I need help. I need wisdom. I need guidance. I've gone to everybody. I've asked. I've done my due diligence. I still don't know what to do. But here's what I know. You know what to do. I'm going to pray until I get an answer. I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray. But when the Lord returns, will he find faith on the earth? How often do the blessings, the needs, the power not come? Not because God was unwilling, but because we didn't persevere long enough. What might God do in this church if your pastor and its members were persevering in prayer for the things that we regularly, maybe sometimes, ask God for. What would, happen if we, what, what, hap, what would happen if we persevered? What would happen if we persevered in prayer? What might God do in our children? 
What might God do in our marriage? What might God do in our relationships? What might God do if we persevered in prayer? Because he, here's what I know. God is loving. God is just. I trust the character of God. And he truly does love me. And if he truly does love me, then I know that he has my best interest in mind. And if I trust him, then I know that what he gives me is what's best for me. What he asks of me is for my best good. And that, what, and that he desires to give me good things. I know that God is just, that not one thing I do or that anyone else does goes beyond his notice. I know that there's coming a day when the books will be opened and in those books will be the works of man. I know that the darkness does not hide men from the Lord. I know that false accusations do not hold up before the Lord. I know that divine, that the divine judge is living and that he is just and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, right? And so I pray. Because I trust God and I pray to trust God more. But when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? How's your prayer life this evening? Are you persevering in prayer? Bringing your petitions before the Lord? Praying without ceasing? Continuing instant in prayer? Knowing that God has never failed, will never fail, and indeed cannot fail? It is not ours to know God's timing. It is not ours to know God's purposes. It is ours to trust God's timing. It is ours to trust God's purposes. It is ours to leave these things in the hand of God. And where is that power found? It's found in the power of persevering prayer.